The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What do you suppose it will take to convince doubting surgeons that a patient whose heart has stopped can still be observing what's going on? When an out-of-body experiencer reports what the doctors and nurses were saying and doing while her heart was stopped, why do so many doctors refuse to listen? What could be greater proof than that, that near-death experiences are real? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today is Barbara Bartolome, a moving force behind the notion that Near-death experiences and the gifts resulting from them are meant to be shared with the world. After her NDE on the operating table in 1987, she has gone on to become the founding director of the Santa Barbara, California chapter of IANS, and most recently was named to the board of directors of IANS National Organization. For a fascinating story about her experience, the Santa Barbara local chapter and some cutting-edge comments concerning the nature of consciousness Read Jeff Wing's article, Death and the Big Wow, in the March 6, 2014 issue of Mission and State, part of uh, Santa Barbara's Sentinel, which is currently on the INS.org website. Barbara, welcome to NDE Radio. Good morning, Lee. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I, I, am I heard great. there was a, I heard there was a small earthquake out there this morning. We didn't even feel it. Yeah, unless it's going to be a seven or above, we don't even we don't even bat an eyelash. <laughs> oh, just as well, I guess. Uh, Barbara, tell uh, tell the audience about your near death experience uh, while you were being prepped for back surgery. Yeah, it was a. I was thirty one years old with a three month old little baby girl and an eight year old son, and um, I went in for the spinal. Uh, discectomy, laminectomy that was happening, and they wanted to do, prior to the surgery the next day, they wanted to do a myelogram where they inject iodine dye into your spinal column, and they did that at the back of my neck, and they had me laying on an x-ray table, and normally this procedure is done, and they get the results, and they go on with the surgery, and everything goes well. They They told me to hold really still, and I was following directions. And after they had injected the dye, a person who was with the x-ray tech started moving the x-ray table by putting his finger on a button and pushing it. So the table was supposed to raise where my head went up and my feet went down so that gravity would take the dye down my spine. And it didn't happen that way because he uh, just mistakenly pushed the wrong button on the machine. So mm. he didn't know that that was happening. And... I felt immediate um, kind of confusion, and I started feeling funny, and I didn't know what was going on, and I wasn't sure if it was what was supposed to be happening, so I didn't say anything. And by the time I realized that I should say something, that I was feeling as though I was going to black out, um, it was too late, and uh, I started hyperventilating, and he noticed then that I was in distress. And I, the last thing I saw before I did black out was 
him leaning over the x-ray table looking at me and then leaning back to see where his thumb was and then looking like, oh, my God, based on him. So (laughs) when I blacked out, there was no loss of consciousness. I was in my body one moment, and when I shut my eyes and lost it, then I was up on the ceiling. And Mm -hmm. I had never known anything about MDEs. I'd never heard of them. And I looked down at my body and the top of his head, and I went, huh, uh, if I'm up here and, you know, he's down there and he started calling code blue and the room started going into a panic mode, um, you know, I, I must be dead. And it wasn't very um, distressing to me at all. It was very, I felt very calm and very centered and I felt um, wrapped in love and just in a very peaceful place. I, I wasn't, you'd think that it would be very distressing because of a child, the children that were involved, you know, losing their mom and I thought about all that in that moment. But when I um, when I was up on the ceiling immediately after I said, you know, hmm, I must be dead, I realized that someone was there with me and I can't name who that person was because I felt so close to them. I felt that I'd known them for so long, like for eternity. And I had no, um, no reason to look over to see if they, if they were there physically. I mean, like, I wasn't there physically, obviously, and I don't think that I had a body or anything up on the ceiling, but I, um, I felt this amazing connection to whoever it was that was next to me. And I, began to talk to them very calmly about how, and as I was watching the resuscitation efforts unfold down below, how I wanted to go back to that life. And I explained, you know, that my three-month-old and eight-year-old would need me and that their lives would be forever changed if I left at this point and that I wanted to help them grow into, you know, beautiful human beings and and um, I also mentioned that I had not completed my work on Earth, that I, I had a purpose and I hadn't done it yet. And my my um, feeling with talking wasn't at all insistence. It was more of a request to whoever it was that was up there with me. And I felt instinctively that they had the ability to um, make what I was asking to have done come true. So... I watched as the resuscitation effort was happening below and there were people coming in and out of the room and um, quite a bit of activity and noise and there was an oxygen mask that was placed on my face and an oxygen cart that was wheeled in next to me. And then a man came in with a small box and he placed it on a ledge next to the x-ray table. And I, as I was looking down and I was, you know, mentally telepathy talking to the being next to me, The that was the only thing that triggered me on down below is that he, I didn't know what that man was doing with the box. And I actually said, now what is he, what is that? What is he doing? And in the moment that I said that, I was then moved from the um, ceiling vantage point above the x-ray table to right in front of the box that he had placed on the the ledge, and he hadn't turned it on yet. He was placing things on my on my chest, and it was a heart monitor, and I didn't recognize what it was until he turned it on, and the little green ball of light, you know, went straight across the screen, and then it 
started back on the left side and traversed the screen again. And the third time it did that, and it was making this monotone humming sound, beep, I went, oh, my God, that's one of those machines that (laughs) tests your heart, and it's supposed to be going beep, beep. So I hadn't had much medical um, issues prior, and so I, you know, and I don't watch TV, so I was kind of like, oh. And, And when I realized that that was the heart monitor, then the minute I did, I was back on the ceiling again. So I I don't know if I chose to move or if I was moved just to get that answer. But um, as um, I was still on the ceiling talking with the being and continuing to carry on my reasons why I wanted to go back, the neurosurgeon that was in the room and the orthopedic surgeon that were doing the surgery the next day were talking because they felt that the defib unit was taking too long to get into the room. And they hadn't, you know, the defib unit, it was 1987, they didn't have them, and this was an x-ray room, so there was no reason for them to believe that somebody was going to need it in that room. And um, so they were deciding to do something else. And the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear, and the people around the table that were helping with their cessation efforts stepped back, and he stepped forward, and he struck me with full force with his fist right in the center of my chest. And, of course, I'm on the ceiling. I don't feel anything, but it was, you know, pretty uh, shocking to see him just blow blow his hand into my chest. And um, the second time that he did that, my eyes shot from up on the ceiling, and I immediately opened my eyes in, in my body, and I was looking up into his face. He had just struck me the second time. And I had the oxygen mask on my face, and I... You know, flipped my eyes open and I started talking into the oxygen mask. Oh my God, I'm back. <laughs> and they, <laughs> the, the nurse said, please, we need to stabilize you. Don't talk. And so I could barely contain myself. I was so excited. And, and so I waited until they took the oxygen mask off and I just blurted out everything. And I was so excited and happy. And I was up on the ceiling and I saw and heard everything. And, of course, the neurosurgeon, who's very well known in Santa Barbara, he's standing there, and he just goes, oh, brother. <laughs> and I was so excited and thrilled to have had that, just gotten my choice to go back, and I was going to be with my children and my husband again. Of course. It, it just, I couldn't, I bubbled out with, oh, no, I, it really was true. I was up on the ceiling. She's the person who did this, brought in the oxygen mask. That man hooked up a heart monitor. I saw it was flatlining, and I explained another couple of things that people had done in the room. And then I turned to the two doctors, and I said, and you said this, and you said that, and then you replied, and then you said, and then he stepped forward two steps and stand clear and struck my chest twice, and I'm back. And the whole room just stood there with no comment and just, I mean, the neurosurgeon turned white. He, I, I watched him just the blood drain out of his face and he, he then just got very upset and he said, I, I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. And he stormed out of the room. The wow. orthopedic surgeon who'd struck my chest, he stayed with me and asked me more questions like, what else did you see? And, and so for the next five minutes, he spoke with me and calmed me and comforted me. But then when they moved me up to a room to await the surgery the next day that they were doing on my back, not a single person in the hospital would respond to any of my questions. 
the doctors in the days mm. to come um, after they did the surgery the next day would would refuse to talk to me about what had happened. And I was trying to put it in a perspective what had happened. I, How did I get out of my body? And how did I see all that? And I was just asking for some sort of confirmation and no one would talk to me. And I later realized that it was because of the fear that they had of the liability for the hospital themselves. But it was it left me very, um, you know, unsure of what to say about what had happened. And my husband at the time said, well, you know, if they won't talk to you about it, it probably didn't happen. And so I just felt very closed down, and I didn't talk about it for 15 years. That was very hard because it, you know, at first it just was really difficult. I wanted answers. But after a while, I just let it go and I raised my family and I went on and, and, uh, it was a nurse at my local hospital that was a friend of mine and we were at a gymnastics meet with our daughters and her mom was passing away and I broke my silence and I said, you know, I, I have a story that may make you feel more comfortable about your mom's passing and and um, I would tell you that story if you'd like me to and she said well sure and after I told her the story she said do you know that you are explaining something that you couldn't possibly know about that's it's um, it's something that a medical tech would know but you with no background in medical would not have any clue that this had been done to you. And I said, really, that the, the stroke to my heart? She said, yes, that's trained in medical school, and it's very rarely used, and it's a last-ditch effort, and it's very rarely, um, you know, positive. It, the people normally don't come back. It's, it's just such a, it's supposed to shock your heart, and it's supposed to shock your heart into beating, but it doesn't work very often. And she said, I, I believe what you're telling me. And it was the first time I was just like, oh, my gosh, I think I need to look more into what I had happened. So I ended up um, looking on websites and finding a website that had a lot of other near-death experiences. And, of course, the Internet had come into being. And, and so I had this search capacity that I didn't have back in 1987. And I ended up uh, connecting with Jeffrey Long with the near-death research, near-death experience research foundation and his website, mm-hmm. and he ended up connecting me to IANS, and I went to a conference, and that started a beautiful relationship between IANS and myself. Which conference did you go to? It was so what, was your, what was your first one? It was the San Diego conference. I believe that was 2008. Yes, very good. Yeah. Yeah, and it was um, very uh, enlightening because of many reasons, but one of the major reasons was the very first night of the conference, there were a number of people, and I had no idea who they were. And I was actually a little scared to be there. I, I, I was still not quite comfortable with my near-death experience and a little afraid to talk about it. I, I didn't quite know how to put it in perspective yet. And... Um, there were a number of people standing in a in a circle with Jeffrey Long and his wife Jody, and I had no idea who they were. But it was Raymond Moody and it was um, PMH Atwater, and these are you know key figures in the in the near death experience research area, and um, a number of other about four other people. 
and they were talking about the after effects of an MDE, and that was the theme of the conference. And as I listened to them talk, I kept thinking, wait a minute, um, you know, the after effects that they're naming, I've had those all the way back to my earliest memories. Why would they have anything to do with my near-death experience when I was 31? Intuition, lack of fear of death, problems with electromagnetic, turning lights off when I walk into a room, or, or you know, things like very odd things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've had those all the way since I was a child. And so I was listening as they were talking, and at the end of the conversation, and they kind of all turned to start talking to each other. I turned to the woman next to me who happened to be PMH Atwater, and I said, I'm, I just don't understand. And I posed the question to her, why would I have the after effects prior to the NDE? And she took my hands and she said, dear, I think you ought to check into your background when you were young and see if there was any incident that might have been an NDE when you were quite young. And, you know, at the time I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe these people think we have more than one of these in our lives. <laughs> and, I, and I just, I remember, you know, answering politely and saying thank you and then, oh, gosh. And so as I went through the conference, though, that planet of see you, I kept thinking, was there anything that I could remember? And there wasn't anything that was a major trauma to me as a child. And so I was uh, had a, a trip planned to go up to Oregon to see an older brother um, about a month after the conference, and he didn't know about my near-death experience at age 31, so he had no no possibility of, I didn't tell the rest of my family or anybody. And so I said to my brother, you know, I'm doing a medical background on myself and uh, medical history all the way back to birth, and I remember when I did this event, and I remember when I had that cast on my leg, and and so, um, can you remember anything else that I should add into that medical history? And he said, well, let me think about it. And so, we were having dinner, and our families were you know, talking and laughing, and after the end of the dinner, he came over and he uh, stood next to me and he said, I do remember something, Barbie, and I, I, I was actually told when I was young not to tell you this. And he said, nobody talked to you about it, but when you were 18 months old, you had a very high fever. You were sick with something that he said, I don't remember what it was, whether it was measles or mumps or whatever. And, and he said, you had a very high fever and you went into convulsions and you stopped breathing. So the parents called whatever it was at that time in 1958, 911. I mean, it's probably the fire department that they called or something. And the fire department, whoever there was, the person on the other end of the line said, you need to put the baby's um, body in tepid bath water. And you need to then add ice cubes and slowly lower the body temperature of the child until the ambulance can get there. So my parents were doing that, but unfortunately, you know, we had one tray of ice cubes. And so my brothers that were 10 years older than me and 8 years older than me were sent to the neighbor's houses to get their ice. And when my brothers came back and were watching as my mom was holding me uh, in the bath water, my brother said I had turned completely dark purple by that time and um, that I was lifeless. And my mom had had some nursing training, and so she was sobbing, and my father was on the phone with, you know, the, the number that he'd called. And um, he said spontaneously, as he was standing there in the door watching the situation, he said spontaneously, I, I took a large breath 
and I arched my back at the same time, and then I burst into crying. And I went from purple to red because I was still feverish. And he said that right at that point, the ambulance had just pulled up in front of the house. They could hear the sirens winding down, and the two ambulance guys came in the house, and they... You know, my brother was pushed aside, and he didn't see how they stabilized me, but they took me off in the ambulance, and three days later, I came home, and I was fine. So I'm pretty sure that I had an original NDE at 18 months old because the after effects are the telltale signs of that. And uh, answering that question, I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind all my years of my life. Why did I have this intuition? My mom was a police officer, and she used to say, do not tell anyone that you can do this. Don't, please don't talk about it. And so I really didn't know why I was different in that way and how I had, I didn't look at it as a gift. (laughs) I, I didn't feel, you know, good to me to be able to know these things. I didn't know how to put it in perspective, and no one was helping me put it in perspective. So I kind of wanted to, you know, bury those those things and not know that I knew when the car accident was going to happen in the intersection that we were standing, you know, on the side of the street and saying, I, I didn't want to know those things. I didn't want to, I wanted to turn it off. And so um, having the information about having the near-death experience as a child and understanding the after effects, that that one conference really helped a lot in putting into perspective my early years and all of those aspects, and it gave me a lot of understanding about why I had been different than my other four siblings and all the other kids that I knew. <laughs> so it helped amazingly, and I really thank IANS for being there for people, and you know, I just would like to help make it more... Um, readily available to people because so many people are not aware that IONS exists and all of the services that they provide. So I'm definitely on board with helping the world to understand, especially medical professionals, mental health professionals, caregivers, hospice workers, those people that encounter someone with a near-death experience and can help them assimilate it into their life a lot earlier than I had the ability to do. Yes, isn't isn't it a shame that it took 15 years for you to be able to acknowledge that uh, that NDE experience? It it does, it does. It made you know changes to who I was. I believe that from early on, you know, my my person the way I looked at life was so different than people, and it would have helped me very strongly to know that that came from somewhere. And I just didn't fit in where I where I lived and I where I grew up and where I I was just um, not you know I was really very caring about people and I and I had uh, you know a lot of the signs of an empty ear and um, it's just sad that that those people that have these are shut down and now the information with the internet is so much greater and with media coming out and and 
you know, very clearly outlining Eben Alexander's um, story and Dr. Yes. Mary Neal's story and Anita Morjani's story and little Colton Burpa with the new movie that's coming out. This helps people the world over to understand. Hopefully, they'll not be as skeptical as some, but um, to at least, you know, have the door open for NDEs to be a possibility. And then when they talk to someone who has had one to keep an open mind about it and those people that have had an NDE to investigate what it means to them personally. Mm-hmm. Now, you, Barbara, you were raised Christian. Um, I was. Has the has the um, has your NDE experience influenced um, um, the way you practice your religion? Or what sort of reaction have you gotten from church people that uh, you've talked to about this? Well, I have to say that raised Christian isn't quite. My family did not go to church, but as a five-year-old, I absolutely knew that God existed. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother went to church, but she lived 50 miles away, so I had a little bit of influence about that. But I actually ended up in a preschool at a church, or a kindergarten class at a church, which I absolutely latched on to um, the feeling that I was in God's home. I, I didn't latch on to religion, weirdly, all through the years. And in fact, I very rarely read the Bible but I latched on to the community of the church because I felt um, I felt love, very much love towards God, and I felt like that was like an extra family for me. So I ended up going to church when my parents never went to church all through my growing up years and um, joined, you know, a young life when I was in high school. And, and so, and my parents actually looked at me kind of askew, like, where did she come from? And so I had a personal relationship with God, but it it really didn't matter which church that I went to, because I could walk into the Catholic Church and feel just as comfortable as the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Buddhist, you know. I went, I went anywhere that any of my friends asked me to go. Mm-hmm. And um, that was very interesting, because when I had the NDE, and after I started assimilating it, you know, those, that many years later, I realized that the connection that I had to God always felt straight through to Him. I didn't feel as though it had to go through any institution that mm-hmm. I attended, you know, a religious institution, religious anywhere. I, I felt so connected um, that I that I realized that I didn't need... Um, it was a couple of years later, and I had been going to church really regularly, and I realized, you know what, I'm kind of past the point where I need the other people to support me anymore, and I really don't need the community of people, and I feel very perfectly fine with um, praying, you know, anywhere I am in any any situation, and I don't attend church anymore. So it's really been a, an interesting uh, change in my life to not attend church anymore, but I, I feel very comfortable with it, and I feel like I, it served me for the years that I needed it, and I really think churches do a wonderful job, but I but I just personally felt that the connection was straight through, and I didn't need that anymore. Well, so, you draw some um, community connection through your local IONS group, which you started. Correct, and I and I've been in Santa Barbara for over thirty years, so I have a huge community of people, and I've been very active in lots of volunteering and nonprofit work. 
so I have, you know, a big circle of people here in Santa Barbara. But um, one of the other things that is important to understand is that we really need to work with our own physicians and our own, you know, like if your parent is passing over, talk with them. And if you understand NDE information, even at a, even at a smaller level, at a, at a basic level, talk with your people that are there, the caregivers or with your elderly parents or anybody that you come into contact with because opening up that discussion and giving them the opportunity then to, you know, find out whether, you know, your your parent maybe is staring off into the corner of the room and saying, Aunt Martha or something, they could be seeing the other side prior to their passing over and yes. having a caregiver or someone in the room that's supportive of that other side and consciousness continuing um, situation, that outlook, uh, that's really important, I think, to give to those people who are passing over. And that's a really important feature also for people who are grieving the loss of a loved one or mm-hmm. facing, you know, cancer, imminent death or something. They're, they need to know that that consciousness continues and that the um, that it's just not, not to be feared. Death is not to be feared. Barbara, thank you so much. Uh, looks like we're just about out of time for today. Um, but I want to thank you, uh, Barbara Bartolome, for being on the show today, and I look forward to uh, seeing you at the IONS upcoming conference in Newport Beach, California, over Labor Day weekend. Yes, I hope I'm looking all- <laughs> forward to it too, Lee. It should be great. It's on health, and the topic is health and healing. I hope all of you listening are planning to attend, and if you would like to listen to this show again, or any other of our programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at iands.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference on NDE's Health and Healing in Newport Beach, California, from August 28th to 31st. So save those dates, and thanks for listening.